The word which by itself is death, may it be infused with the spirit of the living God so that it becomes life, freedom, abundance, challenge, and Lord, above all, may we leave here changed by the Spirit indwelt word. Only you can do it, Lord. May the messenger not get in the way. Amen. Wow, you came back. <laughs> I thought after the you of the tulip, it was like Pastor Kurt was going to have to co- take a couple months to get everybody to come back. Um, and uh, by the way, if you didn't get your notes, I don't think they passed them out, so you'll need notes, and they're on the tables right there in the back, so, uh, so grab them. Um, we're pre- preaching through the book of Romans, and uh, in the last two weeks, we've been in Romans 9 through 11. Great news for Josiah is in one week, he gets to do Romans 12 through 16. Easy. There's hardly anything in there, as you know. Um, but uh, we got stuck, uh, and um, last week, we preached on the the uh, theology of election uh, and predestination. So the big question was, did God predestine who would be saved and who would be lost? And we found that in the scripture, the answer is a resounding no. If you weren't here, look at it uh, and watch it. Um, and so uh, this morning we're going to look at a doctrine that goes hand in hand uh, uh, among those who believe in the un- unconditional election that God did in fact choose who would be saved uh, and would be lost. So to deal with one without dealing with the other really uh, leaves us short. Um, so um, this morning we're going to talk about limited atonement, the L in the tulip. So we did the U and we do the L this morning. Um, and this belief can be summed up with a single question. It's a huge question that bases all salvation theology. In fact, it's the title of this morning's message. If you have your notes, look at the title. Did Christ only die for the elect? Now, it turns out that within classical, historic, orthodox, Protestant Christianity, there are two very different answers to this question. We believe here in our uh, tradition that the word teaches that Christ died for everyone. But those from the Reformed tradition or the pretty much interchangeable uh, terminology, uh, Calvinism, believe that Christ only died for the elect. And so here's a simple definition of limited atonement. You ready? This is the nice news. You don't have to go to seminary. Here it is. Uh, It's your first blanks. Write it in. Jesus only died for those whom the Father elected and thus the only people whose sins can be forgiven are the elect. That follows from the concept of unconditional election that God chose a few, no one else can be saved, only the elect can be saved, and therefore Jesus only died for those uh, who the Father elected. So Calvinism's perspective is this, Christ didn't die for most people. Um, And... uh, Now that we know the Reformed perspective, we're going to look at two huge biblical problems with the concept of limited atonement, much like we did last week with 
unconditional election. Problem number one, here's your blanks. To support the concept of limited atonement, many biblical, passage, uh, many biblical passages must have their meanings altered or ignored. The passages have to have their meanings altered or ignored. And I'm going to give you, a, this is a pretty long list, but it's actually a short list. Um, look at this from 1 John chapter 4. The Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. The Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Now notice, in this verse, for limited atonement to be true, the word world has to mean the elect. But there's a problem. It doesn't say that. It says the world. Notice you have to ignore or alter the meaning of the text. And you never just hang your hat. By the way, the biblical concept of you don't believe, a con you don't make a conviction in law um, other than based upon the two or three witnesses, the Bible does that itself. If you find something that's only once in the Bible ever and you can't find it anywhere else, don't create it as a theology. There's not enough witness in the word to it. So notice, watch this. Hebrews chapter two, Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor and by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Now notice, for limited atonement to be true, the word everyone needs to mean the elect. But there's a problem. It doesn't say the elect. It says everyone. From 1 Timothy chapter 2, for there is no one, excuse me, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, he the, he the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom, as a ransom, as a ransom for, say it, right out of the text, repeatedly. Notice, so, so I'm not giving you systems these two weeks. I'm not overlaying theological systems. We're trying to take the normal, common sense meaning of the text, rightly translated, and there it is. So in this verse, for limited atonement to be true, it needs, all needs to mean the elect, but it doesn't say that. It says all. Ready? Look now. From 1 Timothy chapter 1, it's a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners. In this verse, for limited atonement to be true, sinners has to actually mean the elect, but it doesn't say that. It says sinners, and in Romans chapter 3, who does it say sinners are? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So sinners are the whole world, okay? First uh, John chapter two, watch this. Let's read it twice. It's so powerful. He himself, Jesus, is the propitiation. Now, just so you don't stumble over that, that's an old theological term in English that means basically substitution. It is, he died in my place. I should have paid the price and he paid it instead. He was substituted for what I deserved. So that's that's what propitiation means, okay, ready? He himself is the propitiation. He's the substitution for our sins. And not for ours only. Isn't that interesting? Who's he preaching to? Well, the elect. And what does he say? Not for ours, the saved. Not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. You know what? It just doesn't get any better than that, does it? Look at this. Here we have the clearest of teaching that our incredible Redeemer was willing to shed his blood, not just for those who would come to believe him, 
Jesus is so intent on saving everyone that he was willing to shed his blood for billions who would reject him. In passage after passage, we have explicit clarity that Jesus died for the whole world, for all, for everyone. Jesus died for all sinners. What an amazing Savior. So the first problem with the theology of limited atonement is that to support it, you have to alter or ignore a whole bunch of biblical texts. And now, just like we did last week with unconditional election, we'll look at a, a, a next problem with limited atonement. See, uh, and we'll start with the first uh, key concept. It's not in your notes this week, but it was last week. Remember, in order to have a good New Testament theology, you have to have a very good old Testament theology. Remember, the New Testament doesn't repeat the Old Testament because the New Testament assumes the Old Testament because there is one Word of God. The Word of God is one. It's all the text. It all reveals Jesus. And we're going to see today, I'll only take you through three of them, but seven incredible salvation pictures in the Old Testament that are all about, guess who? Jesus. So, notice with me here, Problem number two, write it in. The concept of a limited atonement is completely absent, is completely absent. Listen, church, it's completely absent in the Old Testament. With this problem, we find the identical issue that we found last week with Calvinism's failure to deal with the Old Testament doctrine of election. Who were the elect in the Old Testament? Israel. Were all the Israelites personally saved? No. And were there non-Israelites who got saved? A boatload of them. There's not a one-to-one match between election and personal salvation. The purpose of election is holiness. And holiness, the purpose of holiness is to, you ready? Save a bunch of people who don't look elect. So it's, that's, okay, so notice this same problem with ignoring the Old Testament doctrine of election, you miss also in limited atonement. And um, here is... Uh, an amazing picture of what happens in the uh, Old Testament. You probably know that the, the kingpin passage for founding all salvation doctrine is the Exodus. Snapshot. God came along and he said, okay, I'm gonna give you this law and maybe if you guys can obey it perfectly for a couple of centuries, I'll come back and save you, right? The Exodus. For those of you who are nodding, you're in trouble. What's what's always the picture of salvation? People lost in sin, bondage. The, The Egyptians thought their dogs were more valuable than the Jews. Worthless, the last people on earth that anybody would ever come saving. And what happens? God says, you, I'm gonna save you. He saves them, takes them, baptizes them in the Red Sea, brings them out of the, out of the Red Sea to that incredible resurrection. And then, months later, he says, you want to know how I live? You know what I'm like? Let me show you what I'm like, and let me ask you, would you like to live like me? Now that I've saved you by grace, law never saved anybody. The law comes along because God says, this is the way I am. Would you like to be like me? Would you always like to be faithful? Would you always like to tell the truth? Would you like people to be able to count on you? Right? Do you, you, you care about the widow, widow, the alien, and the orphan? You do that. By the way, he said that hundreds of times in the Old Testament. Oh my, is the church in trouble? 
You want to be like me? You care about the widow, the alien, and the orphan, right? He gives the law to say, this is what I'm like. You want to be like me? So notice, that's, the, that's always the old, excuse me, that's always the salvation picture. And within these, guess what you got? Amazing things. You get the um, saved from the Egyptian army by the pillar of fire, by the pillar of cloud. Uh, they're saved by the parting of the Red Sea. They're saved from starving to death by the manna. All of these incredible salvation pictures, but this morning I just want to look at three of the specific ones that are related and look at this salvation pa- uh, p- uh, picture number one. Here's your blanks. This happened at Rephidim, saved by the living water from the rock. Saved by the living water from the rock. So look with me. Exodus, the second book in the Bible, Exodus chapter 17, verse 3, but the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, by the way, pastors have been living with grumblers grumblers for a long time, man, so you're in a good group. Um, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And so God stands there, waits for Moses to show up. Moses says, Lord, what in the world do I do with these people? What am I going to do? In verse 6, here's what God says. Behold, I, God, will stand before you, Moses, there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water will come out of it, and the people, that the people may drink. Okay, great, great salvation story, right? Amazing. They're all going to die. And he saves all of them through this water. But in 1 Corinthians Paul shocks us by, in the 10th chapter, retelling this story. And you're ready for what he says? You're not going to believe what Paul says about this rock. It's unbelievable that the New Testament could say this about a rock in the wilderness in the Old Testament. You ready? And all of them, look at verse 4, and all of them drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from the same spiritual rock. You ready? Look at this. This rock, yes, it has has a physical manifestation, but it's actually a spiritual rock, and it says that it followed them around in the wilderness. That'd be cool to have video of, wouldn't it? It followed them in the wilderness, and you're ready? You're ready? The only time you can be absolutely sure of biblical interpretation is when the Scripture interprets itself. It's flawless in its interpretation, and you're ready? You're ready? And that rock was Christ are you kidding me? He dresses up like a rock and follows these pathetic little people all around so he can be there. So then when he's struck, when he's crucified, when the father says, Moses, strike Jesus, not twice, once, strike Jesus and he will provide the living water for you. You get this amazing picture of, but by the way, if you ever wondered how in the world they get saved in the Old Testament, by the only savior there's ever been. Every age, every place, every time, every language, everyone who's ever been delivered, ever been saved, have always been saved by Jesus, the one true Savior. He was just pre-incarnate here and looked like a rock. Okay? So, notice, Jesus is the only Savior, has always been the only Savior. David was saved by Jesus. Noah was saved by Jesus. Everyone's always been saved by the one Savior. Okay? So now, look at this with me. This isn't in your notes, but it doesn't need to be. It's so simple. Who was it that got saved by the water? Everyone. Jesus saved everyone. Everyone got the living water. Everyone. By the way, if you go through the full Exodus, guess what? There aren't just Jews there. 
there are some of the Egyptians that wanted to know God, and they've come along, and they are getting saved by faith, even though they're unelect. Okay, ready? Now look at this. This is everyone. So the living water's for everyone, and notice it's later that we find out a whole bunch of them reject God in rebellion. They want other gods, and they're not saved. They don't have a personal relationship. So there is a remnant who are the saved. So watch the pattern. Not everyone was personally saved, but the living water that Christ provided was provided for everyone. There is no limited atonement from Christ. Okay? Next, picture number two. The Day of Atonement. Wow, you guys are going to have to listen faster. Um, The Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. Picture number two. Look at this from Leviticus chapter 23. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, on the exact day, the 10th day of the seventh month is the Day of Atonement. This is the amazing festival of the Day of Atonement. You shall then sound a ram's horn abroad on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the Day of Atonement, you shall sound a horn all, all through the land. Everyone's supposed to go to the Day of Atonement. Isn't that interesting since we're talking about atonement this morning? And you're ready? Look at this. Who was supposed to come to the Day of Atonement? Everybody. Who finally ended up having a personal relationship with God through forgiveness and faith and trust? The saved. And remember, there were always people coming from outside because last week we learned in Zechariah, if you're holy, if you let me make you holy, people from all the nations will come and say, we want to know your God, and they'll get saved. So in here, there was always a bunch of unelect people who were coming from outside and saying, we want the God of the Jews. Okay, so this is happening all the way through, but notice the provision for the atonement was made for everyone. There's not a hint of limited atonement in the Old Testament, and now Number three, salvation picture number three, saved by the blood of the lamb. Saved by the blood of the lamb. I alluded to this last week. Look at from Exodus chapter 12. The story is beautiful. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. So here we are at the Passover. And apply some of the blood that is in the basin and the lintel and the two doorposts and none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over. That's where the term comes from. The Lord will pass over and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. So you probably know there is no greater picture of atonement in all of the word other than the cross itself than the Passover. It's an incredible event. It's the ultimate expression of salvation and redemption and atonement. And notice, nearly every adult that was part of the Passover, remember how it happens in Exodus 32? They, they like the golden God better than the God who just saved them out of Egypt. It says a whole bunch of them disbelieved and went after other gods, and their names were blotted out of the book of life, even though they were elect. Go figure. You can be elected and you can say, no, I don't want you, God. Well, of course you can. Because what we do is a meaningful in our response to God's offer of grace to everyone. But notice, the blood of the Paschal Lamb was shed for who? Everyone. But the ones who were saved appropriated the blood of the Lamb by living in faith through the blood of the Lamb 
having their sins forgiven. Now, at, at this point, I, I am sure some of you are thinking, I mean, come on, Spate, why are you hammering on this limited atonement thing? After all, isn't, it, isn't this just, just theology? Your understanding of salvation hinges absolutely on this one theological question. Does it matter? Look at this. We'll answer it in the application. Application, here it is. Write it in. If Christ's atonement is limited, then when you're witnessing, listen up, church. If Christ's atonement is limited, then when you're, when you're witnessing, you cannot say, if you repent and put your trust in Christ, you will be saved. Is that still up there? Let that sink in. This is really important. This implication can't be gotten around by any theological gymnastics. If the atonement is limited, then we have no idea who Christ died for. So if the atonement is limited, here's your next blanks. If the atonement is limited when we witness to others, we have to tell them, here's your witness. If God has elected you and if Christ died for you, if God elected you, and if Christ died for you, then if you repent and believe in Jesus, you will be saved. Now, you might be thinking, there's no way anybody's going to say that. Well, that's only been said by, like, thousands of Reformed theologians for the last 500 years, and I want to show you something in a particularly profound kind of setting, Christian counseling, and a great book written, written by uh, Dr. James Adams uh, called Competent Counsel, and he comes from the Reformed theological perspective, and notice what he says in this book called Competent Christian Counseling. Ready? As a Reformed, I think it's up there, as a Reformed Christian who believes in limited atonement, I believe that Christian counselors must not tell any unsaved person whom they are counseling that Christ died for them. What? There it is. They cannot say that because no one knows except God himself who the elect are and whom Christ died for. Limited atonement. And think about the title of his book. From the Calvinist perspective, that's competent Christian counseling. You can say, if you've been elected and if Christ died for you, then if you believe, you will be saved. But Look how dramatic the contrast to that statement is the teachings of the apostles. Look, at here's your next blank. From the apostle Paul to the Philippian jailer. As we pick up the story here, Paul and Silas have been beaten and thrown in prison in the middle of the night. Of course, they're singing praises. And then there's this great earthquake and the jailer's about to kill himself because he thinks everybody's escaped. And look, we pick up in verse 28 of chapter 16 of Acts. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And he called the light for the lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Cyrus. And after he brought them out, he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, pretty simple, isn't it? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So now think about Jay Adams writing to Christian counselors. We just read it. It's totally detached from the teachings of the apostles. See, if Adams is right, then Paul couldn't say to the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If there's a limited atonement, Paul couldn't know 
But amazingly enough, Paul doesn't waffle at all. And in fact, the passage gets even dicier for a limited atonement. You ready? Look what it goes on to say in verse 31. It's on your screen. Look at this. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Ready? You and your household. Tag up. Think what a huge problem that idea is for a limited atonement. How could Paul have said without knowing whether Christ died for every one of the jailer's family? How could he know that? And how could he possibly know since the whole issue of election is supposedly hidden in the secret counsels of God? Ultimately, until you die, you won't know whether you were elect because you can think you're elect and follow Christ and think you're following Christ but not really be like in Matthew chapter 7 and you can do miracles and you can be in ministry but you didn't really have, you didn't really walk in faith and your sins weren't really forgiven. And in the end he can say, I, I never knew you. So ultimately it's really kind of ironic but you don't find in Reformed theology the great assurance of salvation because the question is always, have I been elected? I look like I've been elected but I won't know till I die. That would have been if they gave me another week but need to go on to 12 to 17. Look at this. Now the apostle Peter to thousands at Pentecost. Now think who's at Pentecost. People from all over the world, 17 language groups, Jews, Gentiles, people from all walks of life and from many nations, right? There's a, it looks like New York City at Pentecost. You ready? So here we go. Look at this. I love this. Acts chapter 2. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, how could Peter have said to this vast crowd, repent and each of you be baptized and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? How could he say that? Because Peter knew Christ died for everybody. Peter knew everybody could be saved. He knew there couldn't possibly be anybody showed up that day that Jesus didn't die for. Jesus wanted to save every last person at Pentecost. That's how Peter and the apostles were so confident. So, now, before we move on from this section, I want to press the point to one of the most dramatic implications of the theology of limited atonement. Think about this. As you're raising your children and as you're teaching them about Jesus and as you're trying to prepare their little hearts and minds to receive Christ as their personal Savior, if limited atonement is true, then you can't say to your own children, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved because there's no way for you to know whether they're elect or not. And so there's no way to know whether Christ died for them not or not if there is a limited atonement. Can you conceive of saying to your children as you're teaching them about the Redeemer of the world, but this is the only honest thing that you can say to them if Jesus only died for the elect. But here is the great news, church. From start to finish, the word teaches that God desires everyone to be saved. He desires no one to perish. The Christ, uh, Christ's blood was shed for everyone who will ever live, and I love John the Baptist confidently declaring in his preaching, behold, the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sins of who? The world. Oh my, every one of these preachers of the gospel were absolutely confident that every person has had the blood of Jesus shed for them and everyone can be saved. Now that we've looked at our application, we're gonna finish by looking at two huge implications of the biblical truth that Christ died for everyone. So, like if you grew up in a tradition, you know, that's non-reformed, don't, don't be smug, now it's our turn. Ready? Implication number one. If you haven't been forgiven yet of your sins, the only barrier to your salvation, ready, is you. Let that sink in. If you haven't yet been forgiven of your sins and begun to follow Christ through the Holy Spirit's power in your life, the only barrier to your salvation is you. Since Christ died for everyone and since he offers grace universally, anyone who's unsaved is without excuse. So this is a real key. You can't say, well, God didn't give me a fair chance. You can't say, it's not my fault, I'm not elected. It's not my fault, Jesus didn't die for me. Yes, he did. He absolutely did, <laughs> curse me. And you definitely cannot say, well, you know, the problem here is that, you know, Pastor Kurt just has not explained the gospel well enough. It's his fault. None of us can say any of those things because Jesus died for every one of us and he is pursuing every one of us today. Everyone in the whole world. So if you haven't accepted Jesus as your savior, it's time to face the truth. The only barrier to your salvation is your choices. That's the barrier. In the Exodus, think about it. The parting of the Red Sea, the miracle of the manna, the water from the rock, the day of atonement, the Passover lamb, these are all testimonies to you that Jesus died for your sins and you can be saved right now. If you don't know Jesus, you have no excuses. You have now heard the truth of the atonement that is for the whole world. The price has been paid, the blood has been shed, the atonement has been provided for you. So let's stop for a minute, right in the midst of this message. Right now, will you repent of your sins and turn to God and trust in Christ? and follow him as your Lord right now. I mean right now, where you sit or wherever online you might be watching. I wanna stop for a minute. Everybody bow your heads and close your eyes. Every, not an eye open, not, not one head up, and this is not gonna be a bait and switch. I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hands and then you know, say, okay, now if you raise your hand, you have to come to the altar, okay? Right now, let me ask you, if you know Jesus is calling you to turn your life over to him, or if you're not sure whether you're really saved, but you wanna be sure, you wanna know you're forgiven. Or honestly, you may have come from a tradition that told you you won't know whether or not Jesus died for you until you get to heaven someday, or maybe get to heaven someday, or maybe not. If there's any hesitation, I just want you to clip quickly, I wanna pray for you, quickly slip your hand up. Just peek at me, yes. Just, just, and just look at me and make sure, acknowledge that I've gotten you. Yes, thank you, okay. Yeah, you can put your hands down. Okay, right now, 
If you raise your hand in your own heart and mind, pray with me. Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, and I know that you died for my sins. Please forgive me. I repent, and if you will give me your Holy Spirit, like Peter said, I'll live for you. I know I can't do it on my own, but if your Holy Spirit will do it, then I can live like you, and I want to. Amen. Oh, thank you, Jesus. So the first implication of Christ dying for the whole world is that, that if you haven't yet been forgiven of your sin, sins, the only barrier, the only barrier is you. And here's implication number two. If I believe that Christ wants to save everyone, then it's time to live out what I say I believe. Oh, no. Yes, he actually said it. If I believe that Jesus wants to save everyone, we haven't taken the easy route, folks. We've taken the hard route. It's time for us to act like we really believe what we say we believe. So are you ready? One of the risks of a message like this is that it'll remain merely theological. There's a risk that it'll simply be a doctrinal affirmation that Jesus died for everyone who will ever live and will feel really good about that. And in fact, isn't that great news? You may not have known that when you came in today. It's great news, but here's the risk. Our response to this message may simply be that we now feel more confident about what we believe. Or we might be very pleased that the Bible supports our theological tradition. Aren't we proud? That's just a theological response, and it's not the purpose of why the word was open today. And please, please, please do not just leave thinking, this is great. I can now win a debate with that Calvinist friend that I have. That's not why this is being preached today. You know why this is being preached to us who believe that Jesus died for everyone who will ever live? Let me give you the incredible challenges that this should create for us. Ready? Challenge number one. Here's your blank. If Christ died for everyone and if everyone can be saved, we just read that over and over and over out of the Old and the New Testament. If Christ died for everyone and everyone can be saved, then I should have a deep sense of urgency in my witness. Listen, church. One of the great problems with many American Christians is that we're kind of like experts at enjoying our own salvation and our own churchy thing. And you know what? We should be experts in being assured that we're walking with Jesus and nothing can snatch us out of the Father's hand. We should have that deep, unbelievable assurance. We don't have to wait to find out if Jesus died for us or if we were elect because the bottom line, it doesn't matter whether we were elect or not. Jesus died for us and we will be saved. That is such incredible, great news. But you know what? Just enjoying our own salvation is a really bad response when Jesus wants to save the whole world. You know, we often show so little concern about others being saved. In fact, we often spend huge amounts of energy hoping that those people that are lost out there who maybe don't have the same politics as we do and maybe don't have the same ethics that we do, maybe hoping that God will take them out 
Oh my, how arrogant could we be? God has a plan to save every last one. Let me ask you, does it matter who the president is, whether you pray for the president? Does it matter who's in Congress, whether you pray for them? Does it matter who's in the Supreme Court? Because we are commanded. God has a plan to save every last one of them. Are we in? Oh, my. This is a challenging way to take it. So guess what? You probably know that George Barna has found in their surveys that only one in a 100 American believers ever leads another adult to Jesus. Let me say that again. I didn't misspeak. Only one in a hundred American believers ever leads another adult to Christ. And look how problematic this is for our theology. If we, believe, if we believed in double predestination, if we believed the bottom line is God already elected a few and everybody else is unelect, and it doesn't matter what I do, the elect will be saved and the unelect will be lost, and it doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter what I do. You know what? I'm not, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that people from the Reformed tradition live like that. Many of them have a better witness than I do. I've seen it. Okay, it doesn't make any sense, but praise God they do. But the good news then would be it wouldn't be on us. And of course, ultimately, salvation isn't on us. But you know what our belief system tells us? What I do matters. How I live matters. Hearing about Jesus matters. Hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ actually matters. Pastor Josiah, come on. So we've actually taken the theologically challenging stand. We actually believe that everyone we meet, listen, our neighbor, our boss, our server at lunch, our plumber, our realtor, the person at the checkout counter, everyone, everyone, every one of them can be saved. That's what we believe. But if that's true, we should have an awesome sense of urgency about telling them the good news. So let me ask you, do you have that deep sense of urgency about telling Jesus, uh, people about Jesus and developing relationships with non-believers so that you can show them the love of Jesus. They're not a target. They're a person that Jesus has given you the potential to show his love because he already loved them enough to die for them and if they were the only person who ever had to die for, he would have died for that person. Do we live and love like that? And challenge number two, here's your... Last two sets of blanks. If Christ died for everyone and if everyone can be saved, then my tendency to give up on lost people is a disaster. If what we believe is true, then my tendency to give up on lost people is a disaster. It's like, oh, they have just gone too far. I prayed for them forever. You know, it's just not gonna happen. They've just gone too far. There's no way. I want you to think about the person right now in your life that you think is probably the most lost. You're not judging them. You're just looking at how unbelievably Horrific they have made their own life. So, now let me give you a key concept as you're thinking about them. If Christ died, here it is, here's blank. If Christ died for everyone and everyone can be saved, then we should be as relentless, as relentless in our love and intercession for the lost as Jesus is relentless in his plan to save them. Oh God, forgive me. I am not preaching at you I want you to know that I've been on my face before God realizing how my theology should challenge me to be totally different about how I see every person I meet 
and that every single hateful person is an opportunity to bear a cross because people who are lost only get saved when someone who knows Jesus sees Jesus in them. So as we close, I'd like to ask a simple question. Have you given up on anyone? Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a grandchild. They've just gone too far. I've just... I just can't pray for them anymore. Maybe the burden is so much you're protecting your heart because you just think they're going to be lost. So, have you given up on anyone? Is there anyone who you just think has gone too far? This morning's message is an urgent biblical reminder that guess what? Here's the good news. Jesus is planning on saving them. So this morning... If you've given up on someone, will you rejoin Jesus in his plan? Because if you've stopped being on the plan to get them saved, Jesus hasn't. Remember, even if everyone else has given up on them, Jesus has not. He literally invested his life, his very blood, to save them. If you, in you, does the Savior have someone who will be relentless in prayer and relentless in love and relentless in confidence that ready... You can't get to the end of this and say that our God is weak to save. The greatest missionary in history was a murderer. He said he was the greatest. He was the chief of sinners. And we probably wouldn't be in this church if God hadn't saved him and done in his ministry, the Apostle Paul, that what he has done. So this morning... There are two responses. First, if you just gave your heart to Christ or recommitted to him, make sure that you tell someone today. Tell someone today. You need that accountability. Tell one of the pastoral team. We'd love to hear that. There's nothing better for a pastor than to hear, I I recommitted my heart or I gave my heart to Christ today. Um, And second, do you need to ask the Lord's forgiveness about giving up on anyone? Do you need to re-energize your prayers for someone who may have been, you've been praying for for years? Or has the Lord convicted you that you aren't really praying for anyone around you to be saved? Are you praying for anyone? Do you have a list? Let me ask. When was the last time you talked to someone about Jesus? When was the last time? Are you urgent and relentless? Because I know this for sure. Jesus died for them and he wants to save them. That we know for sure. We don't know if they'll receive the message. And, you know, don't go out, don't be, you know, bullhorn Billy, right? I mean, this is not, this is get into people's lives and love them and the Spirit will draw them to ask the question. And then you're ready with the answer. You know the answer already. Okay, you ready? Regardless, here's how we're going to respond as a congregation this morning. We're going to respond with a great affirmation in song. We're going to declare with centuries of believers, with the great cloud of witnesses, with hundreds of millions of believers from all over the world, that our great Redeemer, Jesus Christ, the Son of the Most High God, El Shaddai, the Rock of Ages, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, that He is, you ready? He is mighty to save. You know, some of you need that message this morning because you are brokenhearted about your children. Jesus is mighty to save. 
So let's join, stand with me and with the worship team. Let's join in the everlasting song and sing with joy and power that Jesus is mighty to save. I suspect if you haven't heard this one at renovation for a while, you've heard it many, many times throughout the church. God is mighty to save. Lead us, Pastor Josiah. <laughs> 